0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Brickenridge. Weekdays, 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR.
0: Today, I want to congratulate President-elect Joe Biden. The President-elect is no stranger to the Senate. He's devoted himself to public service for many years. I also want to congratulate the vice president-elect, our colleague from California, Senator Harris.
1: Well, that was, uh, I think, a significant moment today. U.S. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who remains for now the Senate Majority Leader, depending on what happens with these two Senate races in Georgia, congratulating Joe Biden on winning the presidential election. The electoral college votes were officially counted yesterday, two hundred and seventy is needed, three hundred six is what Joe Biden won. Now, to to some I think who are supportive of this idea that that somehow President Trump actually did win the election, I, I suppose their view is just gonna be that Mitch McConnell's in on this this whole scheme, which is a really strange way of looking at it, but um you know i think certainly republicans for the most part hopefully are starting to recognize that yes okay this this time around their presidential candidate didn't win and so i, I think to that end as i say the the comments from uh, senator mcconnell were uh significant today we'll see what happens because despite that you are still seeing the position of donald trump that this was all stolen from him that there's no way he could have possibly lost that race and uh, somebody or everybody's uh, all all conspiring against him so to see that still at this point I think is is unusual there have been close and contested races in the past in the United States there were a couple of faithless electors in fact uh, in the last presidential election uh the 2000 election was was pretty infamous for you know going weeks and weeks and weeks before uh, knowing who won And there have been some contested races in the past. But how unusual is this? So uh, joining us to talk a bit more about um, some of these current circumstances and also a little bit more about the uh, Electoral College itself, which to an outsider is... Is is really kind of fascinating from a, a political science perspective, why this institution exists, why not just have the popular vote decide the president, as it would be, I suppose, at, uh, for a governor at the state level. Uh, so, joining us to talk more about some of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Alex Kisar, who is uh, the Matthew W. Sterling Jr. Professor of History and Social Policy at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School. He's author author of the book Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? Professor Kisar. Great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
0: Uh, Thanks for inviting me on.
1: Uh, Let's talk about, first of all, this uh, latest iteration uh, of the Electoral College and the votes were cast yesterday. Um, Obviously, the defeated candidates still not prepared to accept those results. From your perspective, how, in a historical context, I guess, unusual is that?
0: Well, well, the... The meeting of the electoral college was very unusual in one respect, of course, because uh, a large number of people were paying attention to it, which isn't usually the case. Right. Exactly. Um, you know, it was being live streamed on C-SPAN from the different states, and uh, and a lot of people were tuning in. Networks were following it, um, so that it was very that was highly unusual. In most years, it's a kind of small, it might be a small announcement on the evening news of, oh yes, by the way, the electoral college met today and ratified Mm -hmm. what we all knew was the case anyway. So that's one unusual feature, that the president, uh, one of the candidates, but also that he happens to be the sitting president, is not accepting uh, this outcome and is railing against it and threatening to raise further protests when the votes are counted in January in Congress, that is off the charts unusual. Um, you know, I don't think that there has been anything quite like this since the 19th century.
1: Because there have been legal challenges, there have been recounts. I mean, there, there have been issues in the past, but but nothing nothing quite like this. You say.
0: Right. Well, I mean, the Florida, you know, the election, uh, the 2000 election, the election in Florida, was actually an extraordinary circumstance in that right. the vote in Florida was going to decide the election, and the vote was extraordinarily close. I mean, the the popular vote margin was about 500 votes. Yeah. Um, and you know, stated somewhat differently, the uh, the margin of victory uh, was surely smaller than the margin of error um in any counting procedure procedure you, you could imagine so that that was a tough one um to figure out how you would count and which count you would accept um this isn't tough uh this right. this, this uh you know even in the in the states that were relatively close Um, relatively close meant 10 or 20,000 votes. That's, that's a lot of votes. That's, you know, that's, that's not random error or a few people who might have moved out of state at the wrong time. Um, not to mention the fact that the popular vote gap is 7 million. Um so I think that uh this this is extremely unusual, and to take it to Congress is again something that has not happened really since the since the nineteenth century to take it to Congress in a seriously contested way um contest objections to electoral votes in Congress have occurred before in response to faithless electors. Um, and they've been decided one by one, and everybody knew that it was completely inconsequential. It, however it was decided, it was not going to affect the election.
1: All right. So the, that that part is set for, I think, January 6th. Yeah, uh, that right. That what would otherwise be kind of a mere formality is sort of the reading of the Electoral College votes before Congress, that, that somehow, and this seems very unlikely, that... that um, that this would be disrupted what what potentially could happen here how does this all work
0: well what, what could happen and at the moment it looks like it might well happen is that some representatives from the house will object to the electoral college results from particular states those states being michigan wisconsin georgia Arizona, Pennsylvania, uh, the, the the usual suspects, which went for which went for Biden, and if there is an objection from both the member of the House and the member of the Senate, it has to be an objection in writing. Um, but if members of both chambers object, then the joint session of Congress, which is counting the votes, recesses, and each chamber then goes and meets by itself. To have a two-hour debate, or up to two hours, about the validity of the challenge, um, and then and then each chamber votes by a majority vote whether it accepts the objection or not. Um, so that, there will be there there's plenty of room for theatrics there, <laughs> and for actions that might, in some people's eyes, taint the legitimacy of Biden's election, but since we know that. Um, at a minimum, that the Democratic-controlled House is not going to accept any objections to these electoral votes. And frankly, right now, I don't think the Senate will either. There might be one or two stray senators, but, but I don't think the Senate would vote for it either. It will be inconsequential except for the theater.
1: Maybe all of this is is reinforcing the point. I think that that certainly a number of Americans have advanced that that the electoral college is outdated. The electoral college is problematic. That if this were simply just a case of the popular vote, which as you say was was really not close at all this time around, a lot of this would be a moot point. Did you do you see this playing into that that conversation? Well, I I, I think it
0: definitely is playing into the conversation. It's unfortunately playing in in, in some. Um, In a number of different ways, I think to a lot of people, including people who have not been particularly active in democratic reform movements, small-d democratic uh, Mm -hmm. reform movements, I think that the shortcomings of the electoral college system are more and more apparent. Um, You know, not only the usual things, like like having a, a quote, wrong winner, the person who wins the popular vote doesn't win the electoral vote, which is what happened in 2016, and which came close to happening this year. I mean, you know, if one of the figures that are being tossed about, if 45,000 votes in in some key states switched, um, Trump would have been reelected even if even losing the election by seven million votes. Sorry. So that's been an obvious thing, but I think that as we, as we've looked at the procedures unfolding and the ways in which for example the possibility of state legislatures challenging sl- uh, slates of electors within their own states and possibly acting to to choose their own electors and then we look at this procedure with congress it's you know the the the, the metaphor which has come to my mind is you know it's it's a little bit like you know some accident happens there's a storm and and suddenly, uh, there's a wall in the basement of your old house which gets blown down, and you get to look behind it at the wiring and the plumbing, and you realize, <laughs> oh my God, you know this stuff is is uh, is really falling apart. I think a lot of people are seeing that, and I think, and democratic activists are, of course, all the more determined to get rid of the electoral college. Unfortunately, I think that. Much of the Republican Party is concluding, looking at the same numbers, is concluding that the Electoral College uh, adv- still advantages them and that the only way they may, they may have a chance of winning uh, the, a presidential election in coming years is to stick with the Electoral College. So the Republicans, as far as I can see, are digging in their heels.
1: So let's talk about why it exists then, or what the rationale is for it, because as I understand, I think in all 50 states, uh, to to win as governor, you simply need uh, the most votes, right? It's, it's the popular vote that decides uh, the state governors, correct?
0: Yes. No, it is the popular vote. I mean, I think there is actually yeah. one state um, that requires a runoff election. But but yes, okay. but it, is the pop, it is the popular vote that determines all other elections.
1: So it works differently when electing the president. Is, is that meant then to 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 uh, give more importance to certain states or what's the rationale for?
0: Um the rationale originally was 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 fairly complex when the framers wrote the constitution in the late 18th century in a completely different political world which for one thing did not have political parties um they were they they really didn't know what to do about choosing a president it was it was one of the very last things that was decided at the constitutional convention in 1787 they went around and around all summer and they and they, they just could not they could not find a way of agreeing about it. the dom- the dominant frame of thought at the time was that actually was that congress should choose the president but then a lot really? of people you know, looked at that and said, that's that's really not a good idea because of separation of powers um, and possible corruption. So they were trying to figure out how to do it. There was support for a national popular vote, but not enough support. And there was particularly opposition from the South, because if you have a national popular vote system, then the influence of a state depends on how many people, vote, you know, show up and vote. That's pretty logical, pretty simple. Um... And that would have meant that that Southerners would have got no political influence on behalf of their slave populations, um, and they wanted to get some influence, as they did in Congress. Uh, and so they opposed the national popular vote and helped to promote uh, this uh, this system that endures to this day, where you know the, the way the Electoral College works is that a state gets electoral votes equal to the number of senators plus the number of representatives it has, not to the number of people who who show up to vote. Um, So you don't lose, uh, in modern terms, a state doesn't lose influence by engaging in voter suppression.
1: Uh, and, and even though there, there's some, some quirks to all of this, there are a couple of states that do it a little differently. But for the most exactly, part, then, right. the, the candidate that wins that state is is allocated those electoral college votes.
0: That's right. Maine and Nebraska both adopted district systems. But let me say, you know, speaking here as a historian, in the early years of the United States, um, many states used district systems. Um, it was winner take all. Is you know the system that's in use in forty eight of our fifty states is not in the Constitution. It was something that evolved out of really hard nosed political and partisan competition in the first forty years of the country's existence, and most of the framers. Who were still alive objected strenuously to it, um, and Congress came very close to passing a constitutional amendment two hundred years ago, uh, almost exactly two hundred years ago, um, that would have required states to use dis- district systems in selecting
1: electors. So. It may be an awkward question for a historian because I'm asking you to predict the future. But do, do, do you expect that that things are going to change anytime soon? Be it you know for for the 2024 election, or you know maybe the 2044 election, looking longer term.
0: 2024 would be very optimistic. Um, I, I don't see things changing significantly by then, but one never knows. Um, you know, right now the. Prospects look less good to me than than they would have looked had, had there been diff, a different outcome in the election. For example, if Texas had gone Democratic, I think the Republicans would have seriously started to question the, value, the virtues of winner take all. <laughs> yeah. um, but what you know? But that said, and again, it's you know, it's the historian in me. In 1956 there was a vote on the Senate floor about replacing the Electoral College with a national popular vote, and it got 17 votes in 1956. Uh, Fourteen years later, it got 58. Um, so, I, you know, I, I don't think that people who favor reform should be despairing, but it's, gonna be, it's going to be a tough road.
1: Well, it's a fascinating issue. Uh, we appreciate your insight on all of this. Professor keesar thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon.
0: Uh, thanks for inviting me.
1: All the best. Uh, take care. That is Alex Sorry, He's a Sterling Professor of History and Social Policy at Harvard Kennedy School. His latest book is called Why Do We Still Have the Electoral College? So there's a fascinating history there. And it is an interesting question. You know, how does a country like the United States go about selecting a president? So it's a little more complex at the national level than it is in, you know, in, in electing governors at the state level. So do you just go to the popular vote? Do you have a system where you still have to win each, each state? Do you have the winner-take-all electoral college votes, or do you divvy it up depending on how close the vote is? Or do you have districts like a couple of states still do? And some of the history of how it all came to be that way, as, as he outlined, is pretty interesting. right. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Tuesday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-TALK. That's 974-8255. Got a few other issues to get to in this hour. A lot more time for your phone calls. Get some of your texts as well. Up the top in this hour, I want to talk about the federal government's new uh, climate plan and what it means for Alberta. Certainly, if you ask the Alberta government, this is bad news for Alberta. Uh, and they've made no secret about their opposition to all of this. In fact, they continue to fight the federal government in court uh, regarding the carbon tax. And like, well, look, I guess the Supreme Court can decide whether there's some legitimate uh, jurisdictional issues uh, at hand here. But what about the impact of the policy itself? It is worth noting, I think, uh, that a lot of industry and business groups have been far more muted in their criticism of this than has the Alberta government. In fact, some have either pra- praised the plan outright or praised various aspects of it. So what does this mean for industry in Alberta? What does it mean in particular uh, for the oil sands? Now, there's the question of what it means to to you and I, and we will pay more for certain things. The rebates will go up as well. Maybe that will be a wash. But I think there's some legitimate concern about what it could potentially mean uh, for the oil and gas sector, the oil sands in particular. Well, our next guest says... Maybe not to worry about that. In fact, it's possible that this could be a benefit to the oil sands. Uh, Max Fawcett uh, is a writer. uh, We've got a column in The Globe and Mail today, which you can find at uh, theglobeandmail.com. joins us on the line here this afternoon. Max, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me
3: on, Rob.
1: Appreciate you joining us here today. Um, first of all, what, what have you made of that, that contrast where well, the Alberta government was very quick to denounce all of this, but, but industry and business groups, it's been a different kind of reaction from them for the most part.
2: Yeah, this has been a recurring theme over the last, I would say, year where there's been a lot of daylight between a government that got elected, in, you know, in part on, on its promise to, to make Alberta great again, and and certainly the oil sands are a big part of that, and the actual companies themselves, who are are really kind of being told by their investors and and by the people uh, they do business with that that climate change is here to stay, and and they have to respond to it. So, you know, you see the government um, making a political argument here, and it's, it's quite frankly, their favorite political argument that that Ottawa is bad uh, and is doing bad things to Alberta. The industry, I, I would submit to you, does not see it quite that way.
1: So th- th- you're, you're right, though, about the politics of it all, that, you know, certainly Jason Kenney and his party ran in part on the idea that they were going to stand up to Ottawa, uh, they're going to fight Ottawa, and they, they certainly take a- every opportunity to do so. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised by what they're saying about all of this. But what what's getting overlooked here in terms of what kind of an impact this might actually have on Alberta?
2: It's interesting, the the, the federal policy came down on the same day that uh, the war room it was, was celebrating its first anniversary, and I think it's no secret to anyone that the war room has not had a very good first year. It's, it's had some, uh, some missteps, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the new federal policy, the, 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 the increase in the carbon tax up to $170 per ton by 2030, is a gift to the war room. It, it, is, it is the story that it is trying to tell, um, which is that Canada takes climate change seriously, that we are a world leader, and it's an it, this is an argument that they could use oh I don't know right now with the Biden administration um today they just announced that Pete Buttigieg is going to be their transportation secretary he takes climate change very seriously there's you know there's a new sheriff in town and and this particular sheriff in in Washington has made climate their top priority we have to get on the same page there and i think that the federal government's decision here really is an opportunity for Alberta to kind of puff out its chest a little bit and and you know, get some headway with a new administration, maybe even save Keystone XL.
1: Well, and uh, yeah, that, that would be big. And, and maybe that reason alone is enough to, to uh, take a serious look at this. It, it does th- say, uh, you know, and, and I think to your point that, you know, it does seem as though we, we often want to have our cake and eat it too here in Alberta, that we, we do love to trumpet the fact that Canada is a very responsible um, energy producer in terms of environmental policy. And yet we fight those environmental policies every step
2: of the way. So do, do we mean this or not? I think that's a, a totally fair question. And I can promise you it's a question that's being asked in Washington right now. Um, we we do seem to want to have it both ways, where when it's convenient, you know, certainly the war room does this uh, uh, on an almost daily basis, they, they, they talk up a Canada's regulatory system and how stringent it is and, and, you know, we're the best regulated oil and gas industry in the world. But then on the other hand, they attack those regulations and they, they say that they're bad for business. So, you know, it's almost like they're halfway there. They, 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 they've got part of the answer. They just need to get the other part. And the truth of the matter is going forward, access to capital for, for oil and gas companies, which is crucial to their ability to do business and, and be competitive – is going to be mediated through the lens of climate policy and through the lens of, of how countries and, and, and provinces and states choose to reduce their emissions. In Canada, we're choosing the most market-friendly way possible, which is a carbon tax. And, and it would be nice if the government of Alberta used its $30 million annual budget for the War Room to tell that story. And not, you know, there was, the, there was a video that they posted on Friday uh about russia and how russia is growing its oil and gas industry and why can't we do the same thing i don't think looking enviously at russia is going to be a great look uh for for alberta or or for alberta in the eyes of of the biden administration
1: the other point you raised in your piece today and and you know, having this, this price signal, a clear price signal for oil sands companies, you know, the, the certainty around all of this, uh, giving them something they can work with. Because I, I think we view it for the, through the lens of, you know, this is a carbon intensive industry, a carbon tax is going to penalize this industry. Where, where do you see the potential that, that this could benefit, maybe not everybody in the industry, but, but could be a benefit to those who really are taking these steps to become more efficient?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's no question that there are going to be winners and losers here, and the losers are going to be the, the oil and gas companies that are the least uh, efficient and least environmentally um, productive. I mean, that's sort of how capitalism is supposed to work. You want the strong to survive. And, you know, in fairness to the industry, we've had a price on on large industry uh, for more than a decade. I mean, that's a part of Alberta's story that that isn't widely understood, um, and probably should be but the, as the carbon tax goes up if you're if you're one of the the companies that that has lower emissions on your oil sands facilities, you know if you're a Synovus or a Suncor, you're going to like this this is going to make you more competitive with your peers. this is going to make you in some cases it may actually even put money back in in your your coffers uh, if you're particularly good at reducing emissions and I think as the world as a whole moves I think, quite aggressively towards uh, reducing emissions and, and using financial markets to, to make that happen. It's kind of like our companies have a head start, right? They, they've gotten the drop on all the other large oil producers in the world when it comes to this, this journey that they're on. And I do think in time it's going to prove uh, very beneficial for them
1: there is, I think, a polarization of the debate, not just those who are dead set against any kind of, of climate policy, but on the other side, those who are most enthusiastic about serious climate policy often tend to be those who who aren't fond of of oil sands development, who aren't fond of Alberta's industry, and so I think it's you know, it's created a perception in Alberta that, you know, which team are you on? If you're on team climate policy, then you must be against the oil sands. And, and I think a lot of the debate sort of stems from those perceptions that I don't know if you can fault the federal government, maybe, for not being as clear about this, that we can be responsible energy producers and this is how we get there. Is, is that a message that, that doesn't have a, a real vocal champion maybe at the moment?
2: Yeah, I mean, I get, I get accused a lot, uh, on Twitter of being a, uh, a champion for the federal government in Alberta. But look, I can admit, uh, that they've done a terrible job communicating, um, th- how this policy interacts with Alberta and its oil and gas industry. And they've, they've got not done a great job of helping tell the story of Alberta's oil and gas industry, which is, which is that it is in many respects a leader. Um, so you're right that there is this sort of, binary polarization where you're either hundred percent pro oil sands or you're a hundred percent pro climate. And I would argue that there is a middle ground here that, that we have to occupy. Um, you know oil and gas production at some point in the future will go will go down demand will go down this is a guaranteed thing that is going to happen but for as long as we're consuming oil and gas i think it should come from canada i uh, you know that's that's we have good standards we can improve uh, but we are among the best in the world and i think that's a message that does resonate with people but uh, you have to be willing to acknowledge both sides of that equation it can't just be Canada's oil sands, Canada's oil and gas industry is great, so we, you know, demand is never going to go down and we don't need to transition. It is going to happen, but until it does, you know, shutting in Alberta's oil and gas doesn't do the world any favours on climate. It doesn't help anything. Um, And so, you know, there's sort of those two camps are both equally wrong, uh, and we need to make more space for the camp that is is the combination of the best of both of them.
1: You know, and there's also the pursuit of short-term goals in Alberta that, you know, we're, we're still trying to fight the feds in court and, you know, it's possible we could, we could still prevail. It's also possible that, you know, we could see a change in government in Ottawa, you know, well, you know really at any point, uh, theoretically. And so even if we're able to derail this plan, is that necessarily anything to, to celebrate for Alberta?
2: I don't think it would be. I think it would be a loss, actually. what What industry wants right now, what investors want, Maybe not industry, but what investors want is they want certainty. They want line of sight. They want to know that if they're investing in a, in a project or in a company, that that it has a plan uh, to deal with what is one of the biggest business issues of the 21st century. And if we're constantly shifting and going back and forth, uh, there there is no certainty, and investors will simply look elsewhere. Um, you know, full credit to the Kenny government. You know, when they when they got rid of the consumer carbon tax. I was not a fan of them doing. They kept the one uh, for large industry mostly intact. And I think that was a lot driven by the fact that the investor community and the business community said, "Look, we we need this. This is helpful for us. This is not red tape. This is not a you know an impediment to, to our prosperity. This is actually something our investors want." Uh, and so, you know, I think I think Alberta and, and and the current government need to look at that a little more holistically. And if that was true for the the carbon price on industrial emitters, maybe it's time to stop fighting the one on consumers as well.
1: Right, Max, we'll leave it there. Let folks know again your uh, piece. It's up to date, the uh, Globe and Mail, theglobeandmail.com. Appreciate you making some time for us here today. Thanks for this.
2: Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
1: All right, take care. Uh, columnist uh, writer Max Fawcett, uh, his piece in the Globe and Mail today on how this climate plan could be a gift to the Alberta, go- or to the oil sands. The Alberta government, though, uh, certainly sees it uh, much more as a, a lump of coal. In addition to uh, uh, its approval, its emergency use authorization for the Moderna vaccine, the uh, FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration in the United States, has also given emergency authorization approval to the first over-the-counter at-home antigen test for COVID-19. You wouldn't need a prescription. You would be able to perform this test at home. And I think, for a long time, you know a lot of people have been wondering why why don't we have more of this available? why aren't we relying more on rapid tests and widely available home based testing uh to really get a handle on the situation because clearly at the moment we don't have a, a handle on the situation, not in Alberta, not in Canada, not in the United States, not in a lot of countries uh so rapid testing is is probably going to be a key between now and Whenever we have a widely available vaccine, and probably even for some time after, I think a combination of a good vaccine and, and good testing could really be a, a way of bringing this pandemic uh, to an end. But uh, it, it's an area where I think we really lagged, unfortunately. Part of the problem is Health Canada. They've set the bar pretty high when it comes to sensitivity, and maybe it's a case of, you know, letting perfect be the enemy of the good. There's a really interesting uh, piece this week from the McDonald Laurier Institute which you can read for yourself at mcdonaldlaurier.ca, uh, on why the failure to use rapid testing points to some deeper problems. Uh, joining us uh, to talk more about it is one of the authors uh, of this piece. Uh, Kashif Brazada uh, is an emergency physician in Toronto, also uh, affiliated with McMaster University and the University of Toronto, also co-chair of the group Masks for Canada. Uh, Dr. Prasad, thank you for joining us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Well, I mentioned that, that news today about the uh, emergency use authorization from the FDA for this home-based testing. How big a step is that, uh, in your view?
3: Oh, it's really good. I think it reflects a trust in the public that they should be able to use these tests, a trust that I think wasn't there before. I think it's a great tool that we could start using more widely to bring down numbers.
1: What's been the reluctance in Canada when it comes to embracing these kinds of tests and this kind of an approach?
3: I think the issue is is that fundamentally there's just misunderstanding about the nature of these tests and the way our government is sort of divided between different levels. We like to look at the Americans and see, you know, that's a dysfunctional government. Canada's dysfunction comes down to the provincial-federal split. You have the regular, you know, Ontario's government has really wanted these tests. But things are held up at the federal level uh, who they don't think it's a priority. So you've seen this dysfunction. Uh, There's a great pilot being done by a long term care home in B.C., uh, but the the public health authorities don't want to do it because they don't like the test. So it's really that kind of four or five level dysfunction that we see in this country, unfortunately. So what's your
1: view on on why rapid testing is so important and and how it can potentially be a game changer in, in trying to keep this virus under control?
3: I think we're seeing, you know, we all saw all the pictures of people getting vaccinated yesterday, you know, that made, made me feel a lot better, made me feel like this pandemic's coming to an end. But really, realistically, most Canadians will get the vaccine in late spring, summer, maybe even late summer, uh, the way things are going. So we still have a lot of time to bring down numbers. I just learned, you know, in one of my neighboring hospitals that we had 10 ICU admits all of a sudden, way more than that hospital could handle. And this kind of story will keep happening. And rapid tests are a very uh, strong tool that we can use to bring down the numbers quickly. And it's already been shown to do that in Europe.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of European countries are really struggling right now. But uh, Slovakia is an example of a country that that has really tried to embrace mass testing and you know obviously they, they haven't ended the pandemic by any stretch but uh, they, they've certainly had some success with that approach haven't they
3: yeah what they did is they did something really interesting they over two weekends in late october they tested almost everybody in the country everyone between like 10 and 65 uh, and they did it twice um, over the of a lockdown period which all of us are doing anyway over christmas so what they did is they found, you know, 1% of the population was infected. They isolated themselves, brought down numbers. They've had, they did another round after that, but unfortunately in the last week or so, they've had an upswing, which means that they're going to probably have to do more waves of this. So this is something you have to keep doing continuously on large numbers of people. You need millions of tests, and you need to do it on a large population regularly.
1: Right. I think part of the, the, the concern in Canada is, you know, the idea of people doing tests on their own. And, and, you know, can we trust people to do the test properly? Can we trust them to respond accordingly if, if there's a positive result? And then obviously there, there's a loss of control. There's not as much information available to, to health officials. You know, how do, we, how do we balance all of those concerns that we want to know what's going on? We want to know how many cases we're dealing with, but we also want to give people the tools to, to, to deal with this.
3: So one thing is the test should not be used as a tool to sort of, you know, take off your mask and act like things are you know, back to normal. These tests are can, be, can uh, pick up the test one day. They may not pick up the test the next day. They're not, you know, 100% accurate like the PCR test. So you have to be very careful with that. You can use it basically to pick up stuff that you might not have caught before, but it's definitely not a replacement for the PCR. So I think with a lot of education, I think with if we show people that it can be done properly, also if we design programs to do it properly, it could work really well.
1: I mean, do we use it in a targeted way? I mean, you know, we could we could acquire a bunch of these kinds of tests and use them exclusively, say, for example, for, you know, long-term care or healthcare care settings or schools or universities or... Is this the kind of thing that you know? Does, does it make sense to have it available in a drugstore, and someone can just walk in and, and buy it and use it as they see fit?
3: I think both cases are good. Like we have at uh, my hospital, one postal code produces like ninety percent of our positive tests. You know, if I had a hundred thousand of these tests, I would test everyone in that postal code twice or three times over a couple of weeks, and then just hammer down the pandemic individually. Like, let's say you have a scenario where a family has a caregiver or a family member that goes out, maybe they can test themselves every other day and just pick up when they might get infectious and then they can isolate themselves. So those are different scenarios. But I think more tools in the public's hands are better than what we have right now.
1: You know, as as encouraging as, you know, the progress on vaccines has been, it, it feels a little discouraging that we're not further ahead right now when it comes to testing. There may be those who feel, well, what's the point now? It's it's almost too late. But do you, do you buy into that? Is it too late?
3: No, definitely not. We've got, you know, a good six to eight months that we're still going to be in this cycle of locking down, distancing. Uh, I think, you know, we're going to have another wave probably once the Christmas wave is done. Like we're going to probably see a lot of cases in the next three, four weeks. That's going to die down. And then we're going to have another wave after that. So we can sort of get rid of this third wave that we're destined to have before everyone gets vaccinated by doing something like this.
1: Yeah, I don't think anyone wants to be going in and out of lockdown until we can get to to a vaccine. I think there's got to be a smarter approach. Um, You know, testing, there's also the the tracing and and isolating side of it that goes with it. But, uh, you know, if we can be more targeted, if we can be smarter, if we can have these tools, that's probably one way maybe we can avoid some of these kind of lockdowns, isn't it?
3: Oh, definitely. I think it's an important tool. If we bring down numbers enough, uh, we can avoid having to go through this cycle, and it would save a lot of businesses as well. And really, it's something we need to commit to, and the technology is even here in Canada. There's companies, a few companies across Canada who already make really good quality tests. Uh, we just need to scale them up and really commit to it.
1: And I, I guess part of it falls to Health Canada, right? And, and you know, maybe the bar is set too high when it comes to, to sensitivity on these tests. Do we need the government to take a different approach?
3: I think so. You know, I don't want, you know, they've got their plates full. Like, I don't want to rag on exactly. them, but I think, you know, it's uh, it comes down to, like, setting priorities. I think if the government clearly communicated that this is something we need to get done, like, on a war footing like we did with the two vaccines that are getting approved, then I think you'd see some action. But, you know, they've, they have their plates full as well.
1: Yeah, well, hopefully we'll see some progress on this one. Again, people can read this piece. It's up at uh, McDonnellLaurier.ca. Uh, thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it.
3: No problem. Thank you. Good luck. Take
1: care. All right. You as well. Take care. Uh, that is uh, Dr. Uh, Kashif uh, Perzada. He's uh, one of the authors of this piece uh, for the McDonald laurier Institutes on our failing to embrace rapid testing and why there's still an opportunity here. He's an emergency physician in Toronto, also co-chair of the group Mass for Canada, affiliated with McMaster University and the University of Toronto.